Today's reading is from Revelation chapter 1, which you'll find on page 1028 in your Bibles. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Please pray with me. Father God, we bow our heads to you this morning in prayer, in reverence and fear, knowing that you are a mighty and awesome God. We know that to even look on you would destroy us, your holiness a fire that would consume us. We could not bear to look on you. We know that by your creative power you have made us, and by your holy righteousness you would be right to snuff us out. Father, we bow to you in prayer, thankful that you have graciously given us the gift of life, and even more, that you have sacrificially given us the gift of eternal life through faith in your Son. Though we were once dead in our sins, you have made us alive in Jesus. Though we were foolish and deceived, you saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of your mercy. Though our sins are as scarlet, you will make us white as snow. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the saving work of your son, Jesus. We thank you for your daily provisions, for seeing us safely into the new year, for equipping us with joy and hope for the future by faith. Father, we long for the day when we will see you face to face, the day when we will be glorified, when we will receive new bodies and inherit a new earth, when the lion will lay with the lamb, when you will walk among us, 
when we will worship you forever and when you will wipe every tear from our eyes. Father, we ask that you would bless us with your presence here this morning. Enable us to worship you rightly. Give us years to hear from your word that we would know you more. In Jesus' name. You may be seated. This morning I'm going to be taking on uh, not the entirety of what Scott just read. I had him read all the way through verse 20 for us in order to uh, get a, a bit more of the whole picture of what's happening here in this first chapter. But I'll be preaching through verse 18 this morning. January is often time. Uh, the month of the year that if you're going to recalibrate, if you will, some things in your life, uh, think about the coming year and maybe some changes you want to make, some goals you want to uh, set uh, that might be different from the previous year. Oftentimes, the January is the month that we do that. And I th- thought it would be helpful. I've desired to do this for, for some years now. thought it would be helpful for us to just spend the first few weeks of this year in the book of Revelation and and recalibrate, if you will, or refine or sharpen, whatever you would like to use, our, our understanding of what it means to be a church and what it means to worship Jesus Christ, who it is that we are worshiping, what he is doing, where he is, and, and, and helping that and, and using that by God's grace to help set us up for this coming year and how he might use us. For his glory. The title of my message this morning is Christ in and over his church. And we could expand that title a bit if you would like to include with a message for his church. When we think of Jesus Christ in the church, what is your thought? I fear that my thought is much, uh, is oftentimes too much probably, uh, one that is meek and mild. Uh, a bit of more long-haired hippie, if you will, than mighty, majestic Messiah. And that's not good. Uh, that's not good at all. In fact, a, a poor view of Christ has and will have an effect on the nature of our church. It has an effect on the nature of our individual lives. It's going to have an effect on our fight against sin, on our height of worship. And so what better could we do as a church than to have the word of God this morning instruct us on the one, the the son of man, who is the son of God, the one in and amongst our church, even this morning. If you take a look at the passage with me, as typical, divided it into three sections. The first is 9 through 11, and then we'll take uh, 12 through 16, and then 17 and 18. The first section I've entitled, Christ with a Message for His Church, verses 9 through 11. We're introduced to the writer of the book of Revelation. This is John. Notice he entitles himself not as John the Apostle, or John, the one whom Christ loved, but, but John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ. He's on this island called Patmos. This is a was a Roman-controlled island. It was used to put political prisoners. A fairly small island, roughly 24 square miles. It's about 40 miles off of Asia Minor. Uh, 
And John, at least by church history, has taken up, uh, has been put there and is there for some time. Uh, some thinking he may have even lived in a cave for much of that time. But he is on this island. He's a brother and partner in the tribulation, and that's important. Uh, the church always is under attack. The church is always in spiritual warfare. There has never been a moment from the beginning of the church until the day when Christ returns when the church is not going to be under some sort of spiritual warfare. And yet here, John, emulating with our our, uh, encouraging these churches, he's writing to them, letting them know, I know what you're going through in a sense. I'm in the tribulation. I'm under persecution as well. I'm involved in this spiritual warfare. But I want you to know That Jesus Christ is in the midst of his church with a message for his church. And we'll see that here in just a minute. Vern Poitras wrote uh, the book that the men have been discussing on Wednesday afternoons. On the book of Revelation. And he says this. Quote, Christian experience has two sides. Suffering and kingdom. Close quote. Suffering and kingdom. Here, John is involved in the tribulation and the kingdom. The word makes very clear the reality of suffering in the Christian life. In fact, it even promises it. Peter tells us not to be surprised by it. But with that suffering for the Christian comes the comfort of the fact that we're within a kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom that never ends. The kingdom that has Christ ruling and reigning. Christ is victorious. And so we know our victory is secure in him. God's presence and rule over us. His people with his word and his blessing. Then provides the grace to patiently endure. John here is writing to seven churches that were real churches. But this word of suffering and kingdom and patient endurance is for every church. It's this idea that yes, we will suffer as Christians. Yes, we will even be persecuted as Christians. But if we're within the kingdom, and that kingdom will never end. Notice, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, this Sunday, the Christian day of worship and celebration of the resurrected Christ. The spirit coming upon him to deliver the message to these seven churches. Write what you see, it says in verse 11, in a book and send it to the seven churches. These were seven particular churches, uh, local churches, individual churches with unique and individual people within each one of these churches. Uh, They're in unique places of Asia. It's interesting to note that if a courier was to take a scroll from John and deliver it to the churches, he would have gone this route. He would have taken this order. They're put in the order in which the news would have been delivered. And it should be noted that Christ knows intimately each local church. There's seven that are listed here, but they're used in a way to describe a a broader understanding that Christ knows every local church. He knows what's going on within every heart within every local church. He knows what's coming from the pulpit. He knows what's within the heart of the one who's speaking from the pulpit. He knows our struggles. He knows FCF. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. Better than we will ever know. And his word is always sufficient for his church. 
His word impacts us individually, but notice it's given corporately. A word-centered church. That's what the church is called to be. It's one that's called to have this at its center. So this is the, one of the reasons why we have a pulpit. I've explained this before, but we want something that puts this between me and you. We, when we look at our order of worship, you should be able to go to any church and look at the order of worship and look what they're singing about and what passages are being read and, and get a better understanding. What are they trying to proclaim from the word? Even when we go through our songbook, we should be asking, what is this teaching about the word? What truths from the word of God are being proclaimed in the songs that we're singing? It would be a good uh, practice just to go home if you've got little children and pull out the bulletin after church and say, well, what did we learn from the word from each one of these songs? What did Jesus pay it at all tell us about the word of God? What did behold our God tell us from the word of God? What did hallelujah from the cross tell us from the word of God, etc.? The doxology, on and on and on. Christ in the midst of his church, with a message for his church. Let's look at the second section here, 12 through 16. Christ, uh, if the first point is titled Christ with a message for his church, second point, Christ in the midst of his church. The exalted, glorified, reigning Christ in the midst of his church. The presence of Christ with the persecuted church. With the struggling church. All seven of these churches that we won't look at in entirety in the coming weeks. We'll just take one of them. But if you have time, read through them and you'll note they're all struggling in some way, shape or form. Christ knows well their struggles and he's in the midst of each one of those churches. As the exalted, glorified, reigning Christ. Now we'll see here in just a moment, but the Old Testament imagery in the book of Revelation is stark. It doesn't quote the Old Testament to point us there, but it's everywhere. And here we have one example of that. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Well, there's a number of pointers, if you will, back to the Old Testament, such as the lampstands. Well, what do we know about that? Well, we can go to Exodus and we could read about the lampstand that was put before the ta- in the tabernacle and then even in the temple. It was there to cast light upon the altar where God would be in his presence and speak to the priest. And it was to represent what the church of Jesus Christ is today. The church, our mission, if you will, is to shed the light of Jesus Christ, to point people to the light of Jesus Christ. The lampstand was to light the altar area within the temple, the presence of God. The church is the city set on a hill. The candle meant to be put on a stand to reveal to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only means of salvation for sinners and the only way to a right relationship with God the Father. You've got this son of man. We could go to Daniel chapter 7 and read about the son of man. One like a son of man. What a description of John that John gives us of the Son of Man. John knows Jesus Christ. He spent three years with him. 
He's, he's laid his head on the chest of Christ. He's looked him in the eye. And he does not recognize this one. This one who is in front of him. He does not write, and I saw Jesus Christ. No, he says, I saw one like the Son of Man. And we know that this is Jesus Christ. But this is the glorified, exalted Jesus Christ. Notice, we could go to Daniel 7, but for our time, let's stick in the book of Revelation. Go over to Revelation 19. Maybe you've already thought about going there. So turn there now. Uh, Revelation 19 is page 1040 in your pew Bible. And let's just look at verse 11 through 16. And here's another description that matches well our description here in Revelation 1 of Jesus Christ. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Christ in the midst of his church. This is what... John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants the church, the local church, FCF, to know on who is over and who is in the midst of the church. This is, this is the Christ. Let's just walk down some of these descriptions here. And verses 13 and following. First, he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Here, yet again, is this Old Testament imagery of a priestly garment that you could find in Exodus. But note the gold sash points to his kingly nature as well. Hair, like white wool, it says, as white as snow. This is to give us this picture of infinite divine wisdom. Eyes like flames of fire. There is no facade that this these eyes cannot see through. There's no false front. There's no hiding from the all-seeing eyes of Jesus Christ. He can not only see all, but he can even purify our sinful hearts. The imagery of the Old Testament is intense in this description of the one like the Son of Man. You have the flaming sword of Genesis 3.24 guarding the garden. You have Moses in the burning bush where you have this combination of voice and fire. Mount Sinai, the power and fire that comes upon this mountain in the presence of God. The descent of fire to burn up the altar of Elijah in 1 Kings. He's got these feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. This represents the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. His voice like the roar of many waters. It should kick us in our minds to Psalm 29. 3 through 9, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. 
the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Gadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Right hand, holding seven stars, controlling the heavenly realm and the heavenly beings. From his mouth comes this sharp two-edged sword. The sword that cuts both ways. One way is it can pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. It can bless and reward. It can strengthen and encourage. It can get hope and provide comfort. And yet it also can cut in judgment. It, de- it can declare, depart from me, I never knew you. His face, like the sun shining in full strength, 1 Timothy 6 verse 16 describes our God, the Father, who dwells in unapproachable light. This is the glorified Jesus Christ. This is the one with a message for the local church, for our church, and in the midst of the church. And he's also the one over the church. Verse 17 and 18, Christ over his church. Now, I think John's response is pretty, pretty good. Uh, it seems pretty right. Natural, even. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But what I want you to see is that one three little, three letter little word that seems to carry so much weight in all of scripture. Scott quoted it in his prayer from Ephesians. But. But God. But. There's this shift. I'm down and I'm as though dead. But. And God intervenes. Christ intervenes here. But. And what I want you to see is all this imagery, all this power, all this glory, this hand that is holding seven stars. Uh, we, we don't even have the technology to understand the stars. Oh yeah, well, you, you can get out the Hubble telescope. I, I guess you could get it out. It's, it's there. You could go look through it. And you could look at stars. And yes, you could see them, but you, you, you can't fathom them. You can't go up next to them and say, well, that's a lot bigger than the picture made it out to be. And he's holding them, like, just in the hand, right? And yet he takes that same hand and he touches John. You, you would think he would go, oh, so sorry, John. Just, just All that power, and yet he's so tender. He's laid on John with a message for him. And for the church, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forever and have the keys of death and Hades. We could go to Isaiah 41, 44, 48. 
where it declares God the Father, the Alpha and the Omega, and yet here Christ is referred to be the first and the last as well. We have this Trinitarian nature of God proclaimed for us in Revelation chapter 1. The oneness of our God, Jesus Christ the Son, with God the Father. Romans 14 verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Christ has sovereign control due to His death and resurrection over every one of our church's needs. Over every one of our lives. Over every one of our relationships. Over our growth. Over our development. Over our struggles. Over our successes. He's the keys to death in Hades. Revelation 20 verse 14 and 15. Then Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The foundational biblical truth that each of us as Christians must know in order to combat and overcome fear is the truth of Christ's death and victory over death and rising again. Christ has conquered the last enemy, death. So what more is there to fear? Is your financial situation so powerful, it's as powerful as death? Can it take your life? What about your child? Whether it's little or large, you fear for their soul. Is it as powerful as death? Your marriage, your future, your health? Do you fear death, addictions? Fear that your hidden sin will be exposed? Is it as powerful as death? No. And Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered sin and death by his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. He has died and lives now and forever. So brothers and sisters, will we not trust him with whatever our fears might be? The evidence is quite clear. His presence among us and reign over us as the living one is enough to fear not. Revelation chapter 1, 9 through 18. As we think of 2019, you come through this door on a weekly basis. If I was to go pew pew and ask, what do you think is the primary need for FCF? I, I might get 50 different responses. And all of them are more than valid, I'm sure. But what's our primary need for our church? What's our what's the primary need for the church down the road? I would submit to us that it's not more people. It's not better programs. It's not music or a style that fits everyone's preference. It's not even gaining as much as we desire and, and it would be good and right to have biblically qualified elders and deacons here at FCF. All of those things are subservient to the need for us as a church to see more clearly and understand more thoroughly the glorious truth of Jesus Christ's presence, knowledge, interest, and concern with us, his bride. That's what he wants us to know. 
individually in our private and personal lives and thoughts and corporately as a church. And it's his presence, knowledge, interest, and concern that we are to taste and see and behold and understand and obey and worship him as the one crucified, risen, and glorified, and ruling reigning. So we can think about, and we should think about, FCF in this coming year. But let's not forget, as we think about our church, who is in and over and um, in the midst of the church. The ruling, reigning Christ who has all authority, all control, who knows well the situations and the personalities and the concerns, and the struggles, the victories. And he's, he's not only knows well, he's concerned about them. And as we look to the Christ who is risen That is where we find the courage and we find the grace to fear not. To fear not. Because he is the one who is living forever. And he has the keys of death and Haiti. He controls all things. We have nothing to fear. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to look at your word. A brief time in Revelation 1 to recalibrate or tune up our understanding as a church of what it means to be a church and what it means to be one with Christ at its, as its foundation and at its center and over the church. Father, we thank you that you care for us as your bride that you nourish us with just what we need. That you build and grow your church. That you change our lives and you draw us into conformity with your holiness. Father, we ask that you would continue to give grace to us. That we would lift our eyes to the picture that we have here in Revelation 1. Of Christ, both almighty and kingly, and yet one who is like a shepherd, tending his flock, tenderly caring for us, guiding us, encouraging us. Father, may we both this year learn what it means to bow the knee in reverent fear, and yet also cling so closely to our friend the one who paid it all. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity now to have a meal together, the Lord's Supper, to find yet again that our unity is is not in what we do or how we're doing it or who we are, our interests, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Body broken and blood spilt for us. We ask that this meal would strengthen and nourish our souls in our fight against sin and in our fight to continue in faith. Eyes lifted, not to ourselves, not to others, but first to you. In worship, in obedience, in love. We ask these things in the precious and holy name of Christ and for your glory. 
Amen.